we just continue to record. So we're just recording this section because the live stream, uh, I don't know, we tried, it's three different SIM cards, three different whatever providers, and none of them are working. So maybe we just sucked all the data out of the, out of the air. But as I said, I don't believe this intisab really means anything for someone who's not studying the madhab and not actively memorizing and studying the books. It, it probably doesn't really mean anything to them. And even someone who's just dipping their finger into it. Okay, you dipped your finger into, you know, Safinatun Najah or something like that. It doesn't make you Shafi'i in reality. You didn't really understand the madhab or take anything significant to it. So the name calling yourself a Shafi'i really, and I, it just doesn't bring you anything. So my point is it's not haram if there's no ta'assub, there's no breaking the Muslims apart, but just you have to ask yourself, does it really make any difference to that regular person? The reality is, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ A lot of people use this as a dalil for the madhab. Like in this dalil actually is a dalil saraha against the madhab, not for it. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of knowledge if you don't know. He, there's no people of knowledge from one madhab. This ayah indicates I can ask anyone of knowledge, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about the ruling, I'm just talking about the ayah itself. Zahirul ayah is I can ask any person of ilm. That's what the zahir of the ayah is. So this ayah really is not, it doesn't help them. Yani it doesn't really help them in anything. So my point is this is what regular people do. The person you think is this staunch, you know, uh, adherent to a certain madhab, is to be honest with you, just following the local imam of the masjid most of the time. That's, that's what they're doing because they're not a student of knowledge, they're not studying, they're not memorizing. So my point of view is that this intisab really doesn't have any reality to it. It's just a name. I can call myself, you know, the righteous, the, um, you know, my, my surname is humble, right? I didn't choose this name for myself in Islam. And this name was my parents and don't declare yourself, but it doesn't make, it doesn't make me humble any. It's just a name. And putting a Shafi'i at the end of my name doesn't make me Shafi'i either, you know? So that's what I think. The next stage is the age of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq died 13 years after the Hijrah until the death of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhum ajma'in 40 years after the Hijrah. Now there is no single reference point for ikhtilaf, right? If the Sahaba differ, there's not one guaranteed person you can get a 100% answer from. Is that agreed? Okay. However, the number of jurists is very small. And those jurists still report to the Khalifa. So ultimately, Still, it's going back to Abu Bakr, especially in judgments, it's going back to Abu Bakr radiallahu But ultimately, the number of people giving fatawa is, is tiny anyway. So, but there is no, nothing here of people say, I am Umari, you know, I'm following Umar. I only take from Umar. I'm very careful not to ask Uthman. Nobody did this, yeah? Nobody says this from any of the madahib that this never happened in the time of the Sahaba that the Sahaba were attributing themselves or following any particular, any particular madhab of a Sahabi. And ultimately, if they're going to disagree, they're going to go back to the Khalifa. 
the Khalifa in terms of judgments. They might disagree in terms of rulings, but in a judgment like what's going to actually be carried out, they're going to go back to the Khalifa. Are we adding another source of tashri' here? Another source of legislation? Yes. Now we have what? Ijma'. We don't need Ijma' in the time of the Prophet We don't need Ijma', right? In his time, there is no consensus. We don't need it. There's one statement. You don't have a choice. Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that's what you do. There's no choice. But Ijma' comes after the death of the Prophet Now, is Ijma' something that was invented by the Sahaba? It's mentioned in the Qur'an, it's mentioned in the Sunnah. In the Qur'an, in the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَمَن يُشَاقِقِ الرَّسُولِ مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبِعَ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ نُوَلِّهِ مَا تَوَلَّ وَنُصْلِهِ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاعَتْ مُصِيرًا So Ijma' now comes that Allah says, whoever opposes the messenger after guidance came to them and follows a way other than the way of the believers, we will entrust him to what he's chosen and put for him Jahannam and what a terrible destination. So following a way other than the way of the believers, didn't say following a way other than the way of Umar, following a way other than the way of Ali, the, all of the Sahaba, and they go against Ijma' of the Sahaba, He'll be given what he's chosen and put into Jahannam. And the Prophet said, Inna Allah la yajma'u ummati ala talala. Allah will not gather my nation upon misguidance. The hadith has some difference of opinion regarding its authenticity, but it came with a few different wordings, and it's generally something the scholars, they narrate it and they accept it in terms of its meaning. Allah will not gather my nation upon misguidance. So Quran and Sunnah gave us ijma' as a tool, but we never used it until the time of the Sahaba. Radiallahu anhum, Allahumma, maybe some rare cases where they all went out for a battle and, and they, they were by themselves. But in general, generally speaking, ijma' was not used until the time of the Sahaba. Abu Bakr was the most knowledgeable of the companions, radiallahu anhu. But he has very few rulings because he was busy with the matter of the Khilafah. Umar had a much larger number of rulings and judgments. Where might you go if you wanted to find the judgments of Umar? First of all, you can go to the books that gather the Athar, Musannaf uh, ibn Abi Shayba, and you can go to some of the Jawami' Even in Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim, you can find narrations from the Sahaba in certain aspects. Uh, but generally, like the Musannaf of Ibn Abi Shayba and places like that, uh, ta you can find the Athar of the Sahaba. But Ibn Qayyim in I'lam al-Waqi'een, he gathers a number of these, and he, a lot of these rulings are gathered together. Now you get to the age of the younger companions and the senior Tabi'een. Now we have, what do we have? We have the seven jurists of Medina. Ubaidullah, Urwa, Qasim, Sa'id al-Abu Bakr, Sulaiman al-Kharij, Sa'id ibn Musayyib ibn Urwa, ibn al-Zubayr, and Salim ibn Abdullah ibn Umar, Qasim ibn Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, and Abu Salama ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Awf, Sulaiman ibn Yassar and Kharij ibn Zayd ibn Thabit. The seven jurists of Medina. The seven jurists of Medina. In this time, uh, these seven jurists become 
really very specialized in matters of fiqh and rulings. And in reality, the, the source, these seven jurists really become the source of the former dahib in reality. Not, not all, but to a greater or lesser extent, their rulings end up filtering down into the four madahib. Then you come to the time of the tabi'een until 350 after the hijrah. And in this time, we see uh, still a lot of fiqh is, is taken from a hadith. Of course, you have Ashab al-Ra'i, the people of Iraq, who primarily were using analogy and reasoning, who didn't have as much of an access to hadith. Uh, and so what you see is, you see uh, the... Still, the books of fiqh are not being authored in large numbers. There are no, and still, there is no clear set of madahib in this time. Not, not really. A little bit starts, but it's not really, really clear in this time that there are all the, which madahib will last and which will not, and the books are not written in detail. Then you come into sort of 350 after the hijrah maybe a little earlier, and you start to have really lots of books that are written on the topic of fiqh. So you have some books that mix fiqh with the sunnah and athar, some books that are just pure fiqh, some books that are fiqh with its evidences, like comparative fiqh. But at this stage, you really start to get a lot of blind following and fanaticism you start to get people taking from books of fiqh, but not taking, not, not take, going back to the people who said them and not going back to the sunnah. You start to get people excommunicating each other, not marrying each other. And you also see people refusing to leave their madhab. And particularly the issues of politics and who became a judge, and particularly between the Ahnaf and the Shafi'iyah, on the issues of who would be appointed a judge at that time. And a lot of fanaticism happened. And what I really wanted to show you, and again, we're just mentioning it briefly, but you can research the history, is that in reality, fanaticism to the madhab really started quite late. It started well after Al-Qurun Al-Mufaddala. It started well after the, the noble generations the Prophet said about them, it was after that that you had ta'asub, extreme fanaticism and calling each other kafir because of the madhab and refusing to marry and refusing to pray behind each other. This never came in the time of, or it was not well known in the time of the golden generations. It wasn't known by the great imams. It wasn't known by their students. It wasn't known by the great scholars of hadith like al-Bukhari and Muslim. These people never knew this kind of fanaticism. They didn't. There were issues of, of fiqh that was get a bit heated. Uh, Bukhari wrote his treatise on Raf al-Yadayn, for example. There were some issues where issues, but it, this fanaticism and excommunicating people and refusing to pray and refusing to marry people and refusing and like this hatred and whatever, 
it really never existed in the time of the great Imams, nor did it exist in the time of the great scholars of Hadith, but it came after that. And it came as fiqh started to solidify into a really separate science. Like we're talking about now, furu' fiqhiyya and you know, books being written on very specific aspects. As this starts to happen, yeah, people start to become more fanatical and less tolerant of other people. And bear in mind, tolerance doesn't mean everyone's right, as we said, but tolerance just simply means that going back to the book and the sunnah and seeing people's opinions in light of the book and the sunnah. Did they have an evidence or they don't? Do you believe that it's a qal which is marjur? It's... It has, an, it has a point, but it's not correct. Or you believe it's a qal which is batil la asla lahu. It has no dalil for it. So the way you differ with people depends on the kind of differing that we're talking about. Someone comes and says, I, don't, I, I differ with you on the issue of la ilaha illallah. So me and him are going to clash, clash heads. But someone says, I differ with you on whether you put your hands on your chest or whether you put it below the navel. I'm not going to differ with them on that level. I'm going to say to them, I have an opinion. I believe this is my dalil. This is why I believe it's right. And I'm going to strongly encourage them to change. They can also strongly encourage me. But the point is, I believe that their qawl is a qawl which is marjuh. It's not the strongest opinion. But I don't believe it's a qawl which is batilun la asla lahu. It's made up and it's evil. and it's So you differ with people differently according. But you're still looking for the truth. It's not like, okay, I tell you what it is, Akhi, let's all split the masjid in half. Half pray like this and half pray like that. No, we want to come to the truth as much as we can. We want to come to the sunnah. But also... There is a different level of respect when you realize that evidences are being used and used correctly versus when somebody differs with you on a matter of aqidah or differs with you on a matter of fundamentals of the religion. Uh, this is something you know, very different. After that came the final stage of development which we're going to talk about now. And this is after Baghdad. Fiqh continues to be very, very divided, polarized. But some scholars start to come out now. In this time, after the fall of Baghdad in 600 and... What did I say? 656? Oh, I got it right. 656. In 656 after the Hijrah. Now some people start to come up and say, hold on, excuse me. This ta'asub and blind following and hating each other is wrong. From them, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, his famous book, Raf'ul Malam, defending the imams of Islam from the bad things that people are saying about them. Uh, Ibn al-Qayyim, al-Imam al-Nawawi, al-Hafid ibn Hajar, Kamal ibn Humam. People start to come and start to uh, move away from this fanaticism. Wallahu a'lam.
What we're going to do now, inshallah, is just to take a couple of concluding points, perhaps five to seven minutes, and then inshallah ta'ala we give everyone a break. Uh, if anyone does need to make sort of wudu and things like that, I would recommend just maybe, you know, go bit by bit, you know, so everybody doesn't crowd the wudu area. But inshallah ta'ala, we're just going to make a few basic points. First of all, another thing which is madhmoom in the madhab, which is blameworthy, is using the madhab as a means to control people. And this is something that we do see even until today, is that the reason why a person is not allowed to... You know, I'll give an example. With me, for example, in my city when I first became Muslim, there was a certain madhab that was spread out. And the brother said to me, look, you know, we doubt about you. you don't, you're not a proper Muslim. You need to choose a madhab. So they said to me, choose a madhab, right? I didn't know anything about madhab. I didn't know the imams. I didn't know where they came from. I thought Abu Hanifa was from India, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Shafi'i was from... I didn't, you know, I didn't have any clue about anything. So I had this idea that I read that Imam Shafi'i was Qurashi, and he's from Quraysh, uh, rahimahullah ta'ala. And I thought, well, you know, that's a bit closer than India. I'm going to be Shafi'i. So I remember saying to him, right, you know, you told me to choose a madhab and you told me, you know, it's not good for you, it's very bad for you, your, your iman is in doubt. And, okay, I've, I'm, I'm going to be Shafi'i. And they looked at me with just horror, you know. Like, no, 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 we said choose a madhab. You know, we didn't, you can't choose that madhab. <laughs> but I want, to be, I want to be Shafi'i. No, you cannot be Shafi'i. Now we doubt your iman completely. <laughs> We doubted you before, now we know. 
So the point is, what is this? It's a wanting of yani, control. Yani not Okay, you love your madhab, you want people to vote, no problem. But it is an issue of control. We don't want you to go out of our control. We don't want you to realize that something the Imam says might be wrong. And then one day, what do you do? You start practicing the right way. And maybe, you know, that Imam just slips from that position that he's put himself in. And that's also madhmoom. I don't know any of the imma of the madhahib and the great scholars of Islam who praise that sort of behavior. Let me quote you. And Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala. He said, "La yahillu liman yufti min kutubi, an yuftiya hatta yaglam min ayna qult." It's not permissible for anyone to give a fatwa from my books until he knows where I took my evidence from. And he used to give a fatwa and say, "Hada ra'yu nu'man ibn Thabit. Hada ra'yu nu'man ibn Thabit." Rahimahullah, you say, this is Nu'man's opinion. He's speaking about himself. He says, this is Nu'man's opinion. It's the thing, it's the best I know. That's how best what I know. And if someone can bring something better than what I said, it's definitely we should take from them. And he said to Abu Yusuf, وَيْحَكَ يَا يَعْقُوبِ Water you, O Ya'qub. لا تكتب كل ما تسمع مني فإني قد أرى الرأي اليوم وأتركه غدا وأرى الرأي غدا وأتركه بعد غد. He said, O Ya'qub, Abu Yusuf, O Ya'qub, don't write everything you hear from me because I'm a person that I take an opinion today and maybe I change it tomorrow or I make an opinion tomorrow and I change it the day. After that, Al-Imam Malik, he said, إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ أُخْتِئُ وَأُصِيبُ فَانْظُرُوا فِي رَأْيِ فَكُلُّ مَا وَافَقَ الْكِتَابَ وَالسُنَّ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا لَمْ يُوَافِقِ الْكِتَابَ وَالسُنَّ فَتْرُكُوهُ He said, I'm just a person. I get things wrong and I get things right. So look at my opinions. And whatever agrees with the Qur'an and the Sunnah, take it. And whatever disagrees with the Qur'an and the Sunnah, leave it. And he said, لَيْسَ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا يُؤْخَذُ مِنْ قَوْلِهِ وَيُطْرَكْ إِلَّا النَّبِيَّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ He said, nobody has all of their statements accepted. Everyone gets some things taken and other things rejected, except for the Prophet There's an amazing fatwa. Imam Malik gave a fatwa that you're not supposed to separate your toes when making wudu. You know, you know like, separate your toes. So a man came to him about this and he asked him about it. And this man, he said, I heard you giving a fatwa in this mas'ala and you believe that there is no need to separate between your toes in wudu. وَعِنْدَنَا فِي ذَلِكَ sunnah, But we have a hadith to prove it. What did Imam Malik say? Be quiet, don't tell me about hadith. It's my madhab. No, he didn't. He said, tell me the hadith. So when he told them the hadith, he said, هَذَا حَدِيثٌ حَسَنٌ this, this is a reliable hadith. وَمَا سَمِعْتُ بِهِ قط. I never heard it before. إِلَّا السَّاعَةِ Except right now is the first time I ever heard this hadith. Then he was being asked about it and he straight away said to the people, all of you should separate between your toes in wudu. Straight away, he said, I never heard of this hadith until today. He's, he is the imam of hadith. 
He is the Imam, yani the Imam, Imam of Hadith. And he never heard the Hadith. I never heard it. Now we give the fatwa for it. Imam al-Shafi'i, he said, كُلُّ مَا قُلْتُ فَكَانَ عَنِ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ فَكَانَ عَنِ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ خِلَافُ قَوْلِ مِمَّا يَصِحْ فحديث النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أولى ولا تقلدوني ولا تقلدوني. He said everything I say and the Prophet said something and it's authentic that goes against what I said take the hadith and don't make taqlid of me. And he said إذا وجدتم في كتابي خلاف سنة رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فقولوا بسنة رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ودعوا ما قلت. If you find in my book something that goes against the sunnah, take the sunnah of the Messenger وسلم, and leave what I said. And then Imam Ahmad, he said, he, that he used to really, really dislike for the books that were written. You know, we said that the book started to be written on the topic of fiqh. He really started to dislike it. And he just wanted the books to be written on hadith. And nobody to write down what he said. And if anyone would write down what he said, you shed dua, or he would, yani he would, yashted dua alayhi jidda. And he would be very rough with them and really harsh with them. Don't write down what I'm saying. You came to write hadith, you write hadith, don't write what I say. He didn't like for the people to write his fatawa. He only wished to like for the people to write hadith. And he said, "Man radda hadith Rasulillah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, fahuwa ala shafahalaka." He said, "Whoever rejects a hadith from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is on the edge of destruction." And he said, "Ra'i al-Auzai, wa ra'i Malik, wa ra'i Abi Hanifa, kulluhu ra'i, wa huwa indi sawa inna malhujjatu fil athar." He said the opinion of Al-Awza'i, who had his own madhab, and Malik and Abi Hanifa is all an opinion. It's an opinion of someone. And all opinions to me are the same. But what matters to me are the narrations. And these are just some examples. I have a lot of examples, but I just wanted to quote you a few. We're going to stop there, inshaAllah ta'ala, for Salat al-Asr. I hope that you found this lecture to be one that is balanced, inshaAllah. One that is... Uh, respectful to the Imams of Islam and the Madahib and at the same time inshallah ta'ala I hope also that you connected your heart to the Kitab and the Sunnah and you realize that that is to follow those Imams if you want to follow those great Imams you follow them by connecting your heart to the Quran and the Sunnah inshallah ta'ala we're going to break for Salah and then after Salah we're going to take Q&A inshallah for as, you know, as much as Allah makes it easy there are papers uh, like this for you to write. I, they'll go around for you to write your questions on. I believe the sisters have papers upstairs as well. Hada wallahu alam. Wassalatu wassalam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.
Ahmed, the camera's not working, maybe the cable fell out. Or... like it's not if someone moved the whole tripod maybe or not yeah it needs to go it's like the frame is not the frame is like this so a little back first of all yeah yeah so bring it like here Center it uh, this way more, 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 more. No, still needs to come the tripod this way more. Okay, no, no, back a bit. Yeah, bring it step this way. Okay, now, yeah, now turn it, turn it. Okay, turn it, turn it, turn it. Okay, okay, back a little fraction. That's it. No, no, too far, too far. Yeah, okay. Now uh, try to. It's wonky the camera. I don't know why. It's like. No, it's like on a slope. Yeah, it's like on itself, like... Because the camera's not facing straight on the tripod and the tripod's pointing slightly down, so the camera is like pointing very down here. You know what it is? It's because of the camera's not... Yeah, there, a little bit more. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Okay. Uh, it needs to come down, it's too high. Stop. Okay. It needs to come this way. Okay, but back a little bit, tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Okay, stop. Now focus it. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, it's okay. This side is like a little dark. We can't probably do much because of the acid time, right? To some. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala abdillahi wa rasulihi nabiyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Amma ba'd Inshallah ta'ala we are going to be continuing with the Q&A segment of this class Now I'm going to start with questions on the topic and then I'm going to move to questions off the topic So I wrote three questions for myself which I thought of that I should have answered in the class can a person ask a sheikh from a different madhab? This answer to this question actually is a lot about understanding what I'm about to say. Because whether I say yes or no, it's not the full answer. Like anyone who says yes they can, 
they didn't give you the full answer. And anyone who says, no, you can't, also didn't give you the full answer. There is tafsil on this issue. There needs to be some understanding. First of all, what is wajib upon the regular Muslim? It is to ask people of knowledge. That is what is obligatory upon the regular Muslim. Now, this regular Muslim is living in a town where the Shafi'i Madhab is prevalent and they happen to ask a Shaykh who is Shafi'i. We said their intisab to the Madhab really doesn't make any difference. Yani they say they're Shafi'i or Hanafi or whatever because they've not memorized anything, studied anything, or done anything. Yani. So they go to their Shaykh and the Shaykh is Shafi'i. Say, Shaykh, Give me a fatwa on this issue of nikah. I married my wife and the wali was not present. The imam says, your nikah is batil. Repeat it. So in this situation, the person asked the person who was the most knowledgeable one they had access to. They didn't have access to somebody more knowledgeable than that. That's the best they had. And then they move city, and they have access to someone different, and that person is of a different madhab. Again, there is no harm in them asking that person in that situation. However, if they're asking about the same question, there has to be a reason for it. Because what is madhmoom here is not asking from the different madhab. What is blameworthy is asking the same question to more than one sheikh in the madhab, out of the madhab. Because now what you're doing is, you're fatwa shopping. It's a new terminology, but it's true, fatwa shopping. You're browsing through the fatawa and looking for which one suits you. Nikah without wali. I'll have one of those. That's how people are, right? It's not sincere. But someone says, wallahi, the most knowledgeable I had access to was this sheikh. I asked him and then I could not access him again. I had to go to a different sheikh. Okay, there is not, I don't see any dalil. You have to bring me a dalil that he has to stay inside the madhab. He's not even in the madhab to begin with. Yani, so how shall we take him out? Yani, he's not even in. He never memorized, never studied, never. He, he's just asking whoever's available to him. But I don't see any dalil, dalil. I'm not talking about your preference or don't like it or you do like it, but I don't see any single dalil that he cannot ask somebody from a different madhab. But what he mustn't do is ask another person the same question without a valid reason. Because remember, he is a muqallid. In the sense, not to a madhab. I mean, he's someone who's not qualified to bring his own rulings. And he's not qualified to even find the rulings of the scholars. So he asks someone and says, Sheikh, I... And you know, this is my second question. Should a person be satisfied with taqlid? No, taqlid is horrible. Taqlid is horrible. Wallahi al-azim, like who wants to be satisfied? It's like eating the dead meat. I mean, nobody wants it. You know, if you have a nice banquet of halal chicken, nobody wants to eat the dead carcass they found on the road. I mean, taqlid is what, what is good about not having any clue about your religion and having to take it from other people. There's nothing, single thing that is good about it. I'm not talking about generally the concept of the muqallid and the mujtahid because somebody can have a lot of knowledge of their religion and still be in taqlid. I'm, I'm talking about like utter taqlid. Like the person is taqlid, taqlid. Yani they have, ah, Shaykh, tell me what to do. I don't know any ayah or any hadith. 
Is that praiseworthy to be in that state? It's not. I don't think anybody who is reasonable would say that it's praiseworthy to live in a state where you are so ignorant of your religion, you're not even able to even find something resembling evidence for the problem you have. But the person is in that situation. So now in that situation, they are obliged to make taqlid of the person they asked. But the person they asked now, they have to ask the most knowledgeable person they have access to. Look, you know, here it is, there's a shaykh, and it might not be the same person in every field. In mu'amalat, it might be someone. In ibadat, it might be someone. In aqidah, it might be someone. In whatever. We should never ever have taqlid in aqidah. But the point is that the person is making istifta, they're asking for a fatwa, he goes to the most knowledgeable person he has access to. Someone specializes in business transactions, Islamic finance. Sheikh, I've got a question about funding my business. Best he can do. But he cannot evaluate the evidence. He is muqallid to the depths of taqlid. He can't evaluate, he doesn't know what the Sheikh told him, just Sheikh, halal or haram? Haram, khalas. Later on, if he starts to study or if he comes across evidence that suggests that his teacher was wrong, yes, he has the right now to seek clarification. He does. He has the right to say, my sheikh told me it's fine, I married without a wali, but I came across the hadith of the Prophet la nikaha illa bi wali. There is no nikah except with a wali. You have to have the wali. And my sheikh told me that I don't have to have it. I got married. But I'm scared now because the hadith says there is no nikah if you don't have a wali. So I'm going to go and ask for some clarification. He has the right now to ask for that clarification because now he's scared that he's, he's been given the wrong answer. And especially as he develops his knowledge in Islam, he may start to feel that certain things he was told might not have been correct and he asks for further clarification. But what he's not allowed to do is say, Yalla, let's have one of each. Hanafi Maliki Shafi'i. Sheikh number one, I want to get married. Do I need a wali? No. I'm with you. Sheikh number two, for the wedding ceremony, we want to serve prawn curry. Sheikh, can I do it? The first Sheikh is like, La, 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 ya Sheikh Makro. He's like, you're doing the nikah. You're serving the buffet, mate. This is playing with the religion. And nobody, when we say you're not required to ask the same sheikh in the same madhab all this every single moment of your life, what we don't mean is fatwa shopping and what we don't mean is choosing the opinion that suits your hawa. Have you seen the one who took his God as his desires? No way, you cannot do that. But if a person took an answer from someone and they got the answer, they made taqlid of the sheikh, they had no knowledge, they got a little bit of knowledge, they, read, they thought the sheikh might have made a mistake, they sought clarification, still they're not sure. Yeah, they have the right to ask. فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ My last question that I asked to myself, you know things about when you're asking questions to yourself. Is there a madhab of Ahlul Hadith? Is there a madhab of Ahlul Hadith? This is a really interesting question. So when we mean Ahlul Hadith, we, mean this, we don't mean, we're not talking Aqeedah now. Because they, we, those scholars of Fiqh are Ahlul Hadith. We're talking about the scholars who were known for Hadith specifically. 
Now, first of all, we have a problem because what do we do with, with Malik and Shafi'i and Ahmed now? Because they are just as famous in hadith as they are in fiqh. Their fame is, in fact, their fame in hadith is perhaps more than their fame in fiqh even. So it becomes difficult. But okay, the, the, the scholars of hadith who were not known to be attached to a particular madhab fiqhi from these madahib, like al-Bukhari, for example. Everyone, well, I think everyone thinks Bukhari was on their madhab. It's true. Al-Bukhari, al-Shafi'i. Bukhari, where do you find this Shafi'i, Where did you find this? Because he narrated, it's not about narrations. Like this is, you don't, you know, in reality, he was a mujtahid. He was qualified to make his own fatawa. He had his own madhab in reality. Like they say, fiqhul Bukhari. The fiqh of Bukhari is in his, in his, uh, the chapter titles that he makes for his book. He gives, the, he gives his fiqh, he gives his madhab inside the chapter titles. But can you say that Bukhari and some of the others that, that gave their fiqh, they were known for fiqh, but they didn't bring it to one of those madhahib, can you say that they had their own madhab called the madhab of Ahlul Hadith. It's a very interesting question, Wallahi. It's very interesting. It re the issue requires research for sure, but people say it. They'll say, like, for example, with regard to traveling, they'll say the <coughs> Hanabila, they say four days. The, uh, leave the Malikiyah Shafi'i, the Ahnaf is 14 or 15, 15 days, about 15 days. 15 days, right? Or 14 or 15 days. Ahlul Hadith is 19 days. They say things like that. The madhab of Ahlul Hadith is 19 days. Any, it needs, anyways, it's, it's, it, even if it exists, which it may well do, it's not something that you can study because it doesn't have its usul and qawaid and all of the abwab of the furu'a faqiyya. But it's interesting, yani, did the scholars of Hadith Sometimes, who are the most knowledgeable people about the hadith, did they sometimes leave the boundaries of those madahib and take an opinion that is just theirs by itself? Yeah, they did. Of course they did. I think historically it's true, for sure, that they did. Al-Bukhari has opinions that are not found in any of al-madahib al-arba'ah. Not many, but you will find things in The madhab of Ahl al-Hadith. It's interesting anyways, inshallah. It's worth a topic of research, to what extent is this madhab uniform, to what extent they differ, who wrote in it, what books could you give a person and say, this is the, these are the books of the madhab. It's not a complete one anyway. Some people might ask about the Zahiriya. The Zahiriya, the problem with the Zahiriya is, many madhabs exist, right? Al-Awza'i had a madhab, and many, as we said, Bukhari and many people, there were many scholars of, uh, of fiqh who had madhahib. And from them was Dawood al-Zahiri. And his madhab really didn't take off because of the fact that they didn't accept qiyas, like analogy. Uh, and Ibn Hazm came and revived it. And Ibn Hazm did a good job of reviving it because Ibn Hazm, I mean, Ibn Hazm was a great scholar, rahimahullah ta'ala. And he revived it and he really, you know, fought for it. But in the end of the day, the issue with the Zahiri Madhab was an issue of really, I believe, of usul. Like the usul are, 
not having those things like qiyas and you know taking everything without going into the meanings and taking it according to the wordings and things like that not that they don't ever go into the meanings but like that initial taking from the meanings like that it did weaken the madhab it did it made the it made the madhab weaker uh, not having that qiyas in it um, so that's a you know, that's another another issue yeah. but really none of these madahib really survived except for al madahib al arba in the four madahib these are the four that really survived the test of time some people still yeah, inclined towards the zahiriyah or took opinions from the zahiriyah that were not in the four madahib but it's not you know something that's extremely extremely common and also the other madahib al awza'i and all of these Madahib, they, they didn't survive either because of the students, either because of the service to the madhab, either because of ink being incomplete, either because the, the knowledge wasn't passed down, as we said earlier. Tayyip. Oh, mashallah. Ya Allah. Okay, I think we'll not put it back until you why. Because we, it's going to be too confusing for me to edit later on. Oh, okay. Oh, mashallah. <laughs> Oh, they were off topic. Yeah, <laughs> Am I obliged to I guess follow I, I'm guessing I'm I'm not sure is it follow the method of the imam of a particular area? You know, in reality, this is a really serious question. And you know I'm going to say that you're not obliged to follow any one particular madhab in terms of, you know, we've talked about this. We explained it. But there's an issue. Does the geographical location you're in have an influence on your madhab? I believe it does. Because the quality of teaching that's available to you. Like if I've got all teachers who are teaching, you know, Matan Abi Shuja and Yaqut al-Nafis and they're teaching Zubad and they're teaching... Then, and I've got nobody who is teaching the books of Ibn Qudama, for example, in the Hanbali Madhab, I'm going to really, really struggle to learn that Madhab if I don't have access to resources. Um, but obliged, you have to have an evidence to oblige yourself to do something. Very, I love this question. I like this question. This question is an honest question, inshallah, and a sincere question. And I, I like these. What does it mean to be Salafi in the light of the topic of the Madhahib? Wallah, this is very interesting. Because in reality, isn't, first of all, I'll tell you two things. Isn't the idea of Salafiya primarily, are we not talking about Aqidah, generally speaking, right? Not, not exclusively, but generally speaking, we're talking about Aqidah, right? So it shouldn't have anything to do with this topic at all. But there is one thing to bear in mind. The word Salafi comes from the word Salaf. And it means attributing yourself to the practice of the early generations. The Sahaba and the Imams who followed them. You like the name, you don't like the name, no problem. The issue here is, if you are following the early generations, does that not include Abu Hanifa? Certainly it does. Does that not include Malik? Certainly it does. Everyone agrees, you know, come on, Imam Ahmed, Imam Ahl Sunnah. Sorry, I had to, I had to throw it in there. Yani, yani, what, yani, this is, at the end of the day, this is what we mean by the Salaf. So should you find someone who attributes himself to the Salaf, who has a hatred for the Imams, you should not. 
But is it the case that there are matters of genuine disagreement among the scholars, like whether it's possible to take knowledge without a madhab? Yeah, there are. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, there are. Ibn Rajab wrote his book, staunchly pro propagating that you must follow one of the four, and people refuted him. Great scholars wrote refutations and said, Ibn Rajab, you are wrong on this issue. So there is, among the Salaf, areas where they might have differed in with regard to the madhab. You know, issues of taqlid, what it is, where does it end? Is it just taqlid and ijtihad, or is there a middle ground? Yeah, there are areas which are genuine areas of discussion and study among the early generations and the imams of Islam. But should you find a person who attributes themselves to the way of the Salaf, rightly or wrongly, and that person reviles the imams or hates the madhahib, I cannot understand how you can attribute yourself to the Salaf and then revile the imams of Islam. But just because I say to you, for example, the Prophet said, There's no nikah except with a wali. You can't go and come to me and say, Oh, you're disrespecting Imam Abu Hanifa. You can't, like, just because I disagree with something doesn't mean disrespecting it, right? So that's also important, Yani. Like, if I take a position on something which is different from a great Imam, doesn't mean that I'm disrespecting that great Imam, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So the interesting question that someone says, How could you? How can you go against an Imam? Who are you? I agree, but I'm gonna to say to you this. The problem is there's not one Imam in the history of the world. There's not even four. There's not even 40. Maybe 4,000, maybe 40,000. And all of them had different opinions. So if I'm gonna give you opinion, min indi nafsi, this is khata. I have no right. I have no right to, to, or to discard the opinion of an Imam for my personal ra'i. I have no right to do that. But what I do have the right to do is with study and knowledge to discard the opinion of an Imam for the opinion of another great Imam and scholar of Islam and sometimes for the opinion of the Prophet or the ruling of the Prophet What resources would you recommend for someone who has no prior knowledge of the madhab to get a basic understanding? So it depends on the madhab. I actually sat this morning with the books of the Hanafi Madhab and I was trying to make myself, I did, I made myself a, a chart, but wallahi, I don't want to speak, I don't want to say it. Well, you know why? Because I just, I'm not qualified to say it, wallahi, I'm not. I could tell you the wrong book and then the sheikhs could say, oh, Muhammad Tim, just stick to what you're good at, man. You, like, this is not like, you know, so I, I will tell you what our syllabus at AMAU is for the Shafi'i Madhab. I will tell you, um, the syllabus for uh, the Shafi'i Madhab at AMU. Just because this is what we teach, Annie. I'm not, I'm, I'm not secretly trying to push you to Shafi'i, to, to becoming Shafi'i. But what I'm saying is that that's what I have written down, really. But I don't even have the Hanbali, I'm Hanbali, I don't even have the Hanbali Madhab written down like this. So we start with, uh, we start with an introduction to uh, fiqh, usul al-fiqh, qawaid fiqhiyyah, maqasid shar'iyyah, and takhrij al-furu' al-usul. Introductions. That means we're not talking about any books at this moment. We're talking about what is fiqh? What is usul? What's a madhab? What's qawaid fiqhiyyah? What's maqasid? What's, what does it mean to apply the principles onto the subsidiary matters? So people at least know what they're going to study. We start with Metan Abi Shuja' in Al-Furu' Al-Faqiyah, then we teach Al-Waraqat in Usul Al-Fiqh. 
Then we teach Idah al-Qawaid al-Fiqhiyya by al-Lahji, and we teach al-Jam'u al-Farq by al-Juwaini, uh, the first part of it. And we teach the first part of al-Tamheed fi takhrij al-Furu' by al-Isnawi. Then we teach al-Madhab inda al-Shafi'iyya by Dr. Ibrahim Muhammad Ibrahim Ahmed Ali. And we teach, then we, we go again. Like now we've taken all the books. Now we go, we start going again. So we take again, after we've taken Matan Abi Shuja'a, now we take Al-Yaqut Al-Nafis. Then we take Al-Durra Al-Misriyah, Fima Waqa'a, Fihi Al-Khilaf, Bayn Al-Hanafi Wa Shafi'iyya, or something, the title like that, by Al-Juwaini, in Khilafiyat, the difference between the Shafi'i and Hanafi. We then take the Fatawa of Al-Qadi Hussein. We take Tabaqat Al-Shafi'i Al-Kubra by Al-Subki. Then we go on and we take Al-Zubad. So now again, we came back again. We take Al-Zubad and we take Al-Lumar in Usul Fiqh by Al-Shirazi. We take Al-Ashbah Al-Nadair by Al-Suyuti. We take Al-Jamu'u Al-Farq again and Al-Takhrij Al-Furu' Al-Usul again. Al-Ma'una Fil-Jadal by Al-Shirazi. We take then Umdat Al-Salik by Ibn Naqib Al-Misri. We then take Al-Madkhal Ila Dirasat Al-Madhab by Al-Qawasimi. Al-Ustilam by Al-Sam'ani. We take Fatawa Al-Imam Al-Baghawi. Then we take Tabaqat Al-Shafi'iyya by Hidayatullah Al-Husayni. Still going. Then we take Muqaddimat Nihayat Al-Matlab by Dr. Abdul-Azim Al-Deeb. We take Al-Minhaj by Al-Nawawi. We take Jam' Al-Jawami' by Al-Subki. We take Al-Majmu' Al-Mudhab by, and every time I try and say his name, I'm going to get it wrong, Kilkeldi. I'm still going to get it wrong. It's a very difficult name to pronounce. Al-Jam'u Al-Farq by Al-Juwaini. We finish off Takhrij Al-Furu' by Al-Isnawi. We finish off Al-Shirazi's Al-Ma'una Fil-Jadal. Then we take Irshad Al-Ghawi ila Masalik Al-Hawi by Ibn Al-Muqri'. We take Al-Nukat Fil-Khilafiyat by Al-Shirazi. We take Fatawa Ibn Al-Salah. And we take Tabaqat Al-Shafi'iyya by Al-Sharqawi. And that is the end of that. In terms of Hifth, we recommend people to memorize Al-Zubad, Al-Fiyat Al-Birmawi, and Al-Fara'id Al-Bahiyya by Al-Ahdan. Or if they want something easier, they choose some lines from Al-Zubad. They do Nazm Al-Waraqat by Al-Amriti. And they do Manzumat Al-Qawaid Al-Fakhiyya by Al-Sa'idi. So that's our program for Madhab Al-Shafi'i. It's not the only program. You know, there's not one way. Actually, for example, even in the Hanbali Madhab, I could give you three well-known, well-respected ways of studying the Madhab. All the books are different for everyone. You can go through the books of Ibn Qudama. You can go through the books who were heavily influenced by Ibn Taymiyyah. You can go through uh, the, the traditional and skip both and go right back to the earlier books. All of them are ways of studying the Madhab, but this is the way we chose for Al-Madhab al-Shafi'i. But at the end of the day, your teacher is going to set you which book first. There are books before that. We teach the kids Safina to Najah uh, in the Shafi'i Madhab. But it's just, it's too simple for the adults. It doesn't cover enough topics. Uh, I've mentioned about taking from different Madhahib. Very, very good question. I really like this question about explaining to someone the difference between taking a matter from the Quran and Sunnah and following your desires. 
Wallah is very good question because there is there are dawabit, there are issues you have to bear in mind. For sure there are. Like for example, a person says, No, 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 I'm going to the Quran and the Sunnah on this. Like we had some students who used to study with us, they they never stopped praying, uh, shortening their prayers and, and praying at home. And they never prayed in the masjid and they never considered themselves to be muqeem. And sometimes when you ask them and say, Akhi, wallah, even madhab ahl hadith, you went now, you've gone, and you've gone like, forget 19 days, 14 days, 15 days, now, Akhi, you are Allahul Musta'an, two years. And he says, I'm taken from the kitab and the sunnah. And the sunnah didn't come with a had for safar, which is true, it didn't. <coughs> didn't come with a, a guaranteed number for traveling and therefore you know I'm just doing the kitab and the sunnah so the first thing is the person should be accessing the Quran and the sunnah in a way that is appropriate to their level of knowledge for example if I'm accessing the Quran and the sunnah I'm starting with the simple books of tafsir then I'm starting with some slightly more complicated books of tafsir looking at my teacher's notes what I'm not doing is just opening the Quran and make my own tafsir from the ayah you know like I'm trying to take it in stages according to my knowledge. Loving the Quran and Sunnah and being attached to it is wonderful. And you should be attached to it. And it shouldn't be following your desires to want to go into the Quran and the Sunnah. But ultimately it comes back to that famous statement, ma laka wa ma You need to know what is for you and what is against you. And no doubt at a very basic level, at a very you know, level where you have not studied much, you really struggle to do that. And that's why really we say about taqlid in terms of complete taqlid it really is darura yani it's an, you cannot avoid it yani when you have not studied anything you have not memorized anything you have not learned anything what will you what will you do yani except ask someone and just take what they say and even if i told you two people's opinion you couldn't you couldn't evaluate between them but as you gain knowledge in islam you do have the ability to evaluate and so you tell people it's about accessing the quran and sunnah in a way that is appropriate to your level of knowledge. And it's also about progressing in stages. So you're not jumping to stage 20 and making your own tafsir and your own opinion on the hukum of the hadith and everything, but you are reaching for the Quran and Sunnah because that's what we all should be doing. But you're doing so in a way that's appropriate to your um, level of understanding and you're doing so in a way that is consistent with the teaching of uh, the scholars of Islam. I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a vague answer, the question is quite big. Up to what period of time is ijma'? Well, like the first of all, there are two types of ijma'a, right? There is ijma' which is spoken of and there is ijma' sukuti silent ijma'a where basically nobody goes against it. I'm trying to simplify it for the brothers who are I'm sure we have some usuliyin in the audience who are saying, Allah, you just, you're too simple, man. Just make, tell people. But simply, and you have a situation where we all say in one voice, we agree. And you have another situation where someone says something very publicly and obviously, and nobody comes out and says, you're wrong. No doubt, ijma' is much easier to prove when the numbers of people are smaller and it's easy to make isti'ab, to have complete view of their works. The sahaba, the tabi'een, it's much easier. When you start to get to our time, it's very hard. 
it's very, very hard to, you know, to bring the conditions of ijma'. But you still have to have matters of ijma' and you still have to have the concept. I don't think, you know, Allah didn't put a time limit where this concept expires. But it is harder and harder to achieve as time goes on. And I think and we'll get one of the brothers who specializes in Usul Fiqh to give us a proper lecture on it sometime. I'm going to take this question slightly differently about whether it's permissible to ask for a dalil. It has to be permissible to ask for a dalil. And you have to be able to ask for an evidence. But you must be very careful in the way that you ask for it. You mustn't disrespect your teacher by like, Sheikh, I don't take what you say to me. Bring me a dalil. But you must be focused on the dalil. Focused on the evidences. So you must actually say to people, you know, Sheikh Ahsan Allahu ilaykum wa baraka feekum Sheikh may Allah honor you May Allah bless you Sheikh if I could ask you to understand this opinion better Where it came from Sheikh If you wouldn't mind Like that with respect you ask the Sheikh for the evidence And not Sheikh I don't take from anybody until they give me ayah So Sheikh if you've got an ayah otherwise I'm going out No you have to You know you have to speak with respect But you can ask for a dalil And People who are sincere in knowledge, they love for you to ask that. Like Imam Malik, look when he, people asked him for evidences. And he loved it. He was like, you know, give me your sunnah. Go on, give me your dalil now. And then they share the dalil and he changes his opinion. Students who are studying in an institute which encourages absolute taqlid in every level. And accused the studying student not to progress beyond that and they feel under threat. Yeah, for sure that can be a problem because you could have an institute where the emphasis is on absolute taqlid, like, you know, and don't go ever, ever, ever go past it. I think we have to draw a line under the Q&A, Ahmed, now, because this, yeah, this is Fajr, until Fajr. <laughs> and the questions have, like, some of them, six, seven, like, questions are written on one paper, so. Um, so it is hard. You don't disrespect your teacher. If you're not happy the institute you're studying in, you go study in a different institute, but you don't disrespect your teacher. At the same time, you have the right to uh, take the kitab and the sunnah and to attach your heart to it. And if your teacher discourages you from that, then for sure, you know, we go with what the Prophet said. But at the same time, you know, you, I would say don't even get involved in the discussion. You know, when the students are all going around you or you or someone, you don't have a madhab and... Just don't even get involved. Just say, Salamun alayk, sa'astaghfiru laka rabbi. Salam to you. I'm going to ask Allah's forgiveness for you. I don't. Why am I going to get involved? Idfa' billati ahsan. Respond in a way that's better. You know, don't, don't get involved too much. Or if you do speak to someone, speak with knowledge. Say, so, so this is my issue here. I feel like the Shaykh is saying to me that I, I must never try to see, you know, the different opinions in the madhab and I must always just see everything through what he said and then he can say no because you know you're at that level right now and there can be a discussion upon knowledge but otherwise just try not to get involved Allahumma sta'an Allahumma sta'an Wallahi people ask can we study with you and Allahi Allahumma sta'an if you got to the stage where you want to study from me, it's, and it's not, I, you, you feel like, look, you know, what I try to do, honestly, is I try to take what the scholars say and bring it into the English language. I try my very best 
to do it authentically. But uh, anyways, I mean, people can study at AMAU, of course, uh, AMAU's institute is available. But that is led by Ustad Abdurrahman, who is deserving of you for, to study from him. And I'm just uh, supporting Sheikh's work, inshallah. As for South Africa, wallahi, I wish I could recommend. I do, I can recommend one institute, and forgive me for this, inshallah, it doesn't cause controversy, but uh, I did go to Cape Town, and I was thoroughly impressed with Taiba Institute. I really was. And they were lovely brothers who were doing a great job and working very, very, very hard. Um, so I believe they have an online program. I don't know how detailed it is, but I, I, that's not me saying there's no other institute. That's not, I, I'm just saying this is, you know, we can only bear witness for what we saw, and it was an amazing institute. Which madhab is closest to the Sunnah, in my personal opinion? Akhi, I want to leave you alive, please. There's no way I can answer that opinion and get out of this masjid. Illa man rahim Allah, unless Allah has mercy on you. Wallahi, in reality, uh, I don't believe there is an answer to that question. I do think that there are advantages and disadvantages to madahib, I do. Um, I'm very impressed with the usul of the Shafi'iyah. I think that from an usuli point of view and a qawaid point of view, it's very, very strong, especially because you have writing from Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala. For sure, you cannot beat the, the uh, reasoning and the intellectual evidences that you find uh, in the madhab of the Ahnaf is very strong and their debating is extremely strong. <laughs> don't, don't debate with the Hanafi if you want to survive. They are very, very, they are very, very, very strong in debating, Wallahi. But the point is that in reality, the Kitab and the Sunnah is what I want, not, not to recommend the madhab. It depends on your teacher, it depends what's available to you, it depends on, you know, in terms of the Athar, the madhab that has the least in terms of, least, in terms of usul and the most like athar, I think it's the madhab of Imam Ahmed. Because he was very against anyone making a madhab from him. He just wanted the hadith. So it's maybe if it's closer to this issue of, you know, what we talked about madhab ahl hadith. But then later on people came and they, they put usul and they used the usul of others like the Shafi'iyah and they, you know, so they, they kind of, you know, jumped on that as well. Like, and I can't, I can't say one madhab is closer to the sunnah just to say that. We teach at AMU, Shafi'i Madhab, Sheikh Abdurrahman, what can I do? Inshallah, one day, if I finish all of my studies and uh, necessary ijazat, etc., in the Hanbali Madhab, then perhaps I would start to teach it at AMU. I don't know if I will ever get any further than that, but I would like to. So the issue of the fact that what we find when we go to study a madhab is we find uh, ta'asub. So someone says like, look, I go to study the madhab, as you said, I'm saying it's a curriculum, I'm trying to reach the Qur'an and the sunnah, but I find people pushing me with ta'asub. You do have to select your teacher, that's one thing. You have to select your teacher, you have to be sensible about the type of institute, the type of teacher you have, because once you've accepted that teacher, you're like a slave to that teacher. That's a thought from the Salaf, you know that. That when you take knowledge from someone, it's like you became like a slave to them. And you become like, you serve them, you look after, you don't go, you know. So before you choose that person, you have to choose, you know, you have to choose carefully in reality. 
You do. You have to choose carefully who you take it from. This knowledge is your religion, so be careful who you take your religion from. But you do have to take it from Mashaikh. You can't, you can't come, you can't just take it from books and you know things like that. So try to take it from reliable teachers and go look. If the teachers are few and far between, if it's rare, alhamdulillah, yani they're not absent. Yani we met many, many, many great uh, teachers who are teaching Islamic studies in Johannesburg, in Cape Town. I'm sure they're also there in Durban as well. So I'm not, yani you'll find them, but you have to go out and look. Talab al-ilm, la yunalu al-ilm, birahat al-jism, like they say, you don't get knowledge by resting your body. You get knowledge, I'm gonna tell you something amazing, al said it. Let me see if I can get the exact, I'll quote it from memory. I know, inshallah, I know from memory. He said, they asked him, how did you get knowledge? How did you become a scholar? He said, I'll come close to that, he said. They said to him, how did you get knowledge? He said, I left off reliance upon anyone other than Allah. And I traveled all over the world. And I was patient like a donkey. Some of them say, الجمار, like, like holding on to a coal. And some of them say, patient like, or hold, like, sorry, like a stake, not a coal, like a stake. Like, الجمار, like a stake in the ground. Like if you put a stick in the ground, the wind, the rain hits it, it doesn't move. Or like a donkey, it just keeps going one foot in front of the other until it reaches destination. And I get up early like the crow. Four things. Put your trust in Allah, travel through the earth, Put one foot in front of the other like the donkey until it gets to its destination. Or be like the stake in the ground, the wind batters you, you don't move. And get up early like the crow. And there's this Imam, Al-Imam, Imam, al uh, Okay, can any person use a single narration, any single ahad narration from hadith, from a single companion to establish, to establish an evidence. Yes, with a condition. Now, if I say yes, people say, come on, man. How do you know the companion didn't make a mistake? How do you know it, the author didn't make a mistake? How do you know you're reading it from the correct print? Tayyip, be shocked. And that is that that narration fulfills the conditions of authenticity in the Ahl al-Hadith, according to the ulama of Hadith. And if that condition fills the, if it fills the authenticity from the scholars of Hadith, I don't mind if one person narrated it or if 100 people narrated it. Let me give you a proof. Every single one of us, in all of the Madahib al Arba, the hadith that you hear all the time again and again, which hadith? Innama al a'malu bin niyat wa innama li kulli ma Single Sahabi, nobody narrated it except a single Tabi'i, nobody narrated it from him except a single person. Single, single, single. And then later it spread out among the people. Hadith, ahad, ahad. Yani there's nothing more ahad than that hadith. Bukhari brought it the first hadith in his book. By the way, the first hadith in Bukhari is ahad and also the last one. Kalimatani, khafifatani ala lisan, faqilatani fil mizan, habibatani ila rahman, subhanallah, bihamdi, subhanallah, al It's also ahad. So it's like Bukhari is telling you, look, there's no problem with ahad when it fulfills the conditions of authenticity. Otherwise, mutawatir, there are no conditions of authenticity, except ithbat tawatur that's it. I mean, from what I know, in the ulama al-hadith, the, the people of hadith, 
The mutawatir has no condition except one. Isbat al-tawatir. That's it. You prove it's mutawatir, khalas. You don't need to look at was he thiqa, ghair thiqa, hafiz, ghair hafiz. If a hundred thousand people, you know, come in and say to you something happened outside, they all tell you the same thing. You don't need to line them up and say, do you pray five times a day? And do you, khalas, it's mutawatir. You only need to prove tawatir, that's it. Prove and balagha had the tawatir. As for ahad, every single one of them, you have to research it until you prove it from the science of hadith. Authentication, the, the, the conditions of authenticity for the hadith. If you have that, it doesn't matter if one person narrated it, or ten people narrated it, or a thousand people narrated it. What's your personal advice to an ordinary person who wants to follow one madhab? I think I've given a lot of advice. Well, I just kind of put it on. Attach your heart to the Quran and the Sunnah. Don't have ta'assub, don't, don't be fanatical. Uh, if you're going to study your madhab, then you study it from the books of the madhab with the shaykh. If you're going to just want to know how to pray, then you find the best person you know to teach you and you ask them to teach you how to pray. And he, I think I gave a lot of advice in the talk, but that's my, my, my summary. Can someone change their action if someone brings them a hadith? Absolutely. But this, the hadith has to be clear. It has to be clear to them. Yani. That's the issue. And the hadith has to be clear to them. That's the condition. So somebody brings him a hadith. He doesn't know it's authentic. He doesn't know it's not authentic. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know if it's abrogated. Like, he needs at least to understand the hadith. Yani. So even someone brings him the hadith. has a quick look at the explanation. Okay, hadith in Bukhari. Alhamdulillah, it's authentic. Okay. All right. Yeah, I understood. Yeah, I'm going to change. Of course they can change. Insha'Allah ta'ala. That's the, that's the whole point. Okay, so this question, I'm going to leave it. It's a good question, but I think it's un, like it's, I've spoken about some of the aqidah issues significantly, so we don't need to necessarily go back there. Why? Because I don't want to confuse people between issues of aqidah and issues of fiqh. Because this is a shubha that people use to attack our aqidah. They say your aqidah is wrong because you don't follow one of the four imams. And that's like they, you know, they, they're mixing two things, smoke and mirrors, trying to divert you away from one thing into another thing. Or they say our aqidah is right because it comes from the four imams, but your aqidah doesn't come from any of the four imams, ya It comes from Greece. So there's no... Yani, they don't come from the four imams, so don't, yani, don't mix aqidah and fiqh. Can you explain to us the differences in aqidah between the four imams? And again, it's an aqidah question. I, I, I mean, it's a nice question, wallahi. There's a nice book. It's called the aqidah of the four, the creed of the four imams, translated into English. What about taking the easier of two options? Wallahi, you, you tested me today, wallahi. It's hard, yeah, it's wallahi, hard, hard, hard. It's hard, wallahi. Like, if both options appear to be halal, See, there's differences between the ulama that are tadad. You know, one says halal, one says haram. Here, you can't just say it's easier for me to go halal. But one says, you know, for example, there's some things we do like khuruja min al-khilaf, for example. For example, we know, at least from my limited study, that it's not an obligate, it's not a pillar, according to the ahnaf, to read Surah Al-Fatiha in the salah, right? It doesn't invalidate your salah. The jumhur, they said, 
that is for the most part, if you don't read it, invalidates your salah. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of aqwal, but generally speaking, what can we do? More than one of the scholars of the Ahnaf, they made it, and I have the quotes. They said, in this case, what we should tell the people to do is to do what? Read Surah Al-Fatiha. Why? Because according to them, Quran, read whatever is easy from the Quran. And for us, Fatiha is easy. And also, it gets you out of the problem now. There's no difference of opinion. Everyone agrees. And that's why the, the fatwa from the Madhab is to read Fatiha. If you didn't see, ever see the Imam come up and start reading, you know, like without Surah Al-Fatiha in any, in any masjid. Why? Because here the ease is not about choosing one halal, one haram. It's about I can accommodate that and it gets me out of the problem. So that sort of situation is okay. Two scholars, one said to you, look, you know, I'm not saying to you it's haram. You can do it. And the other one said, I believe it's completely halal. Yeah, you can, you know, you, you can go with it because it's easy for you. But you can't just choose one on your desires and you can't just, uh, you know, you can't take a halal haram and just choose the easier of the two. Wallahi, very beautiful question, Annie. Is there any Imam which is the best Imam to follow? There is. Wallahi, I'm going to tell you the truth. Wallahi. I swear, Wallahi, there's one Imam, the best Imam you can follow. Which one? Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As for everybody else, everyone else is good in some things, not so good in others. That you, you cannot like the Rasul is the what is the Imam that you follow absolutely. Everyone else had good things and things that you know things that they were better at and, and so on. What do people say? What do we say when people say if you leave your madhab, you're following your desires? You can't call following the kitab and the sunnah following desires. That's that needs any like you, you have, but it's tafasir. Like, why did the person leave this opinion? Yani, what, what is the reason they did it? Is it because the This is ijma'na. The sunnah, the ijma' came, that the sunnah came clear to them. Is it because the sunnah came clear to them? Or is it because they just don't like that opinion? Or like you have to look at the reasons for it. But you have to have a dalil for what you say. Um, I think I did give you a straight answer. I think people said I didn't give a straight answer to some questions. I think I think I did. So that's what I have for you. Uh, I don't have anything else. I think I did give you a very straight answer. I don't. I didn't hide anything, or I didn't, um, you know, put out. From, maybe they're asking you didn't give a straight answer which method to follow. But that's because there isn't a straight answer. Yani, how can I tell you who? Which teacher do you have right now? Is a teacher teaching? Yani, what what books do you have access to? And what's a teacher like? And what's your? I, I don't know how I can answer it, that question. Yani. Is it possible to implement all four madhahib at the same time? To be knowledgeable of them is possible. But implementing them at the same time, it's like, to me, the question doesn't, doesn't quite make sense. Like, it doesn't quite, quite match what the madhab is like. Because if a madhab is a curriculum, can you study them all at the same time? You're going to get super confused. Um, could you practice them all at the same time? But if someone says it's allowed and someone says it doesn't, how do you practice them both at the same time? So... I mean, I don't think that the, like this issue, but can you follow the sunnah as best you can? And that means that you might have some things you do that originally came from the Hanafi madhab and some things came from Shafi and something. Yeah, of course, that's the point. 
I said to you, Sifat Salat al-Nabi Sallallahu The introduction of Sheikh Al-Bani is very powerful. Allah, very powerful. No one madhab contains the prayer of the Prophet Sallallahu perfectly. Not one. Every one of them has parts and, and, and other parts that are not included. So at the end of the day, I'm not saying that you just pick and choose, but I'm saying that uh, if you, on your journey to come to the Quran and the Sunnah, by the end of it, you are, inshallah, taken from other madhahib and other sources, because as you grow, like I said, you start with the ikhtilaf in your madhab, then you look at the ikhtilaf outside, and sometimes you make an opinion that you say, actually, I believe genuinely here that this opinion is actually stronger than the opinion in my madhab. And that takes time to come to, and even your teacher might do it for you. You might say, but I'm just a regular guy, I'm never going to do that. But that's fine, your teacher might have done it already for you. How many times, I'm, I'm amazed, Yani. sometimes I see things, I go to a masjid, it's masjid, it's very strong on a particular madhab. And I see things, I'm like, look, I'm not an expert on your madhab, but Habib, that's not in your madhab, wallahi. It's not. It's not in your madhab. As far as I, like... Wherever I, I could not find it, I went back, I went through all your books, I couldn't find this anywhere. They're like, yeah, because we made, this is our tarjihat, yani we made this to be the correct opinion, even though the opinion doesn't exist inside the madhab originally. So we imported it into the madhab. That's how madhabs are, right? That happens. Tayyip. Um, the moving of the finger in the tashahud. These are, these are like fifth questions, right? So we might be moving off the topic now. Wallahi, the majority of the narrations mention keeping the finger still. And one of the narrations mentions moving the finger. Some of the scholars authenticated it and others didn't authenticate it. Uh, I personally believe it is authentic. But the fact that it's not narrated except in a, a very small number of narrations to me would indicate that it's something that you can do sometimes and maybe other times not. Um, but in any case, I don't see any problem with doing it all the time. If, I mean, I, I believe the hadith is authentic uh, with regard to it, but it's not the majority of what's narrated about the Prophet On the day of Arafah, do we fast local sighting or do we fast with the hajis? Um, in general, in moon sighting, in Arafah or anything else, there are two mainstream opinions. And this is what the scholars of fiqh, they call it, اختلاف المطالب or they call it اعتبار اختلاف المطالب something like that do you now take into account regional differences people use the word local local is the wrong word to use it should be regional because a matla is like the same moon you see like it doesn't like okay I'm in South Africa and the other one is in Lesotho they see the same moon they might be in a politically different border but the moon is the same moon they're looking at so regional differences and there are scholars who strongly brought the hadith about regional differences and others who didn't. I personally, the way I see it is that as long as your local masjid and your community has a legitimate way of determining the beginning of the month, you should go with the local community. As long as it's legitimate, meaning they follow a mainstream opinion that has evidence. As for the one who says, you know, like, I calculated that it's not possible for Arafat next year to be on this day. This is no, nobody's, this is, nobody said this yet. So this is, this, this is not correct. So what I say is that in this issue of moon sighting, the correct opinion is either you have i'tibar ikhtilaf al-mutari, 
you say that yes, the regional differences count, or you say they don't. If they don't count, what do we say? Any reliable sighting of the moon anywhere in the world, not Saudi, I mean, I, this thing of Saudi, um, personally, me personally, I don't know where it came from. Our Mashaykh in Saudi told us you must not do this. Like make Saudi, if Saudi fasts, we fast, and if they don't fast, we don't fast. The reality is there are two mainstream opinions. One of them is we take into account regional differences. The other one is a global sighting, as long as that global sighting is reliable. Now that means there are some countries who sadly don't use a reliable method of moon sighting. They look, okay, Saudi said Wednesday, we've seen the moon on Friday. <laughs> Next Wednesday if we could do it. As long as we don't do it on the same day as Saudi. That's not mu'tabar for me. I'm never going to take that. I'm going to say, yeah, your khawl is mardud because it's just hawa. You, you're not interested in whether you saw the moon or you didn't. You're just interested that you don't want to do it on the same day as them. But this is hawa. You see the person who took their God as their desires. As for the person who this person has a genuine, like they saw the moon and they have a genuine system of moon sighting, it's reliable. Yeah, you can, you know, if you believe that there's no regional difference, you can take it. But you go back to your mashayikh in this, because what's the point in having a masjid where one guy does it on Wednesday, one th Thursday, and the other one on Friday? Really? Like, instead, look at what your mashayikh says. As long as it's a reliable, mainstream opinion that they're using, then inshallah in this, you may follow them in that, uh, inshallah. Personally, I was very keen on the regional thing. I looked into it, I did some research, and I sort of went towards the issue of the global sighting. But like I said, my opinion doesn't count because I'm not here. In our masjid, we use uh, global sighting in, in, in the UK. We, we say that wherever the moon is reliably sighted in the world, we're going to apply it to ourselves. But it's very possible to, to, the opinion for regional sighting has strong evidences for it as well. Arafah or anything else? Like Arafah doesn't differ from anything else that we, I used to say yes it does like you know Arafah the Muslims are all together but in reality you know the start of the month is the start of the month yeah. like I, I don't you could argue that for global sighting that this is one of the reasons why but I don't know I, I don't I don't see that there's a difference in that in Allah's best okay where do the scholars take it that women's salah is different from men's so there's a lot of, there are some real differences, right? The where the imam, the lady who's an imam, where does she stand in the saf? Sah? There's a difference in where the lady, she stands in the saf. Um, but some of them took it from issues of, uh, I don't know if it's correct to say issues of maqasid or issues of like looking at the situation of what is intended by the sharia and issues of haya and things like that. But in reality, you know, the Prophet said, إِنَّمَا النِّسَاءُ Women are the full sisters of men. Everything that's described for a man applies to a woman. Everything described to a woman applies to a man unless you have a dalil to make it separate. And there's no prayer better than the prayer. For a woman, there's no prayer better than the prayer of the Sahabiyat. And they didn't distinguish for the most part, except in those things that are narrated in the hadith. What's the truth about wiping socks? They get wet. I don't know, Wallahi. Wallahi, it's, it's, it's true. I, I guess the issue is wiping over the khuf. There is. It's a long topic. Um, I will try to. I don't know, we don't have a lot of time until Maghrib also. How long do we have? Seven minutes. Okay. 
So wiping over the socks is a mas'ala fiqhiyya, of course. From it is the issue of putting it on in tahara. You wash your feet and then you put your socks on. And the socks uh, being uh, yani the leather khuf that's agreed upon, or whether they can be jawarib, made from wool. And that's a matter the scholars differed about. But many of the sahaba appear to have wiped over woolen socks, and Allah knows best. On top of that, does the sock have to be of a certain thickness? This goes back to the issue of the illa in the ruling. Is the purpose of wiping over the socks taysir to make it easy, or is the purpose the fact that it holds water? I see the purpose is taysir in this, but I still wouldn't wipe over three minutes, Allahumma. I still wouldn't wipe over a sock that's so thin you can see your feet through it. Um, I believe the niqab is obligatory, to be honest with you. I will lie, I do. I believe the niqab and covering the hands is obligatory. Of course, the scholars differ over it. But I, I, that's my, you, you ask my personal opinion, that's my personal opinion. Someone gets badly injured and can't help themselves to make tayammum, um, and there's no one to assist him, what does he do? So someone is in a situation where they are really in a terrible situation, you know, hospital bed, not lie flat, they can't get up, they can't make tayammum, and there's no one willing to help them. Do the best you can, whatever they can do, do, and whatever they can't do, pray as they are, because they do the best that they can possibly do under the circumstances. If they can wait until the time still hasn't gone out, yeah, they can wait for someone to come and help. But if there's like three minutes left till Maghrib, they haven't prayed Asr, they're already late for Asr, there's nobody there, they do, you know, try to reach your hands to some dust, try your best. If they couldn't do it at all, pray as you are. فَاتَّقُوا مَسْتَطَعْتُمْ Oh, it's a big question. Well, that's a very good question, Yani. Um, very briefly, you find Kitab al-Jihad in the books of fiqh. So what's your you know, thoughts on this? No doubt, uh, jihad actually comes into two things. It has an aspect which is aqadi, aqidah. Like, who do you perform jihad with? Do you perform it with every leader or do you only perform it with a righteous leader? Ahl sunnah they said we perform jihad with every Muslim ruler, whether he is righteous or whether he has shortcomings. That's an aqidah issue. The aqidah issue, yani some of the aqidah issues, you know, can anyone just get up and just start their own movement today? That's an aqidah issue, to be honest. But then there are fiqh issues. There are issues about sharing the war booty and what the general is allowed to do if he thinks he's going to be defeated. And there are issues about obedience within the army. There are a lot of fiqh issues. And they are studied in the topic of fiqh. So to get a good understanding of this, you need the aqidah issues in there. And you then need to go to the abwaab al-fiqh and you take it like any other topic of fiqh, uh, inshaAllah ta'ala. And from there, you will uh, take benefit. Can you make taqlid in aqidah for a layman? You must never make taqlid in aqidah. Like you must never be satisfied with just somebody told you this is the right thing to believe. No, you must always strive to search for the truth, but there are times when you could not get that truth immediately, but you must always, always strive, because Allah said, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمُ اتَّبِعُوا مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ قَالُوا بَلْ نَتَّبِعُوا مَا أَلْفَيْنَا عَلَيْهِ آبَاءَنَا أَوَلَوْ كَانَ آبَاءُهُمْ لَا يَعْقِنُونَ شَيْئًا وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ When it said to them, follow what Allah revealed, they say we follow what our fathers were doing, even though their fathers did not understand anything and were not guided. Okay, this is a madhab question. Soon enough, I studied a particular madhab and I'm acquainted with it. I've later on studied other madhab and opinions. I'm often approached by people. Um, you have to answer according to, and you have to answer according to what you believe to be the best thing for that person and the closest to the sunnah. That's what you have to answer. You can't answer like, look, al-madhab al-qadim al-jadid. Like you have to answer according to what you believe 
is the correct. Now, if you've said you've took two madahib, maybe you took one as an asl and one you took khilafiyat, but you have your opinion about what's right and wrong. You must give them the correct answer. You can't give them the answer which is like, just this is the answer for you and this is the answer for someone else. Haram for you, halal for you. You have to give them what you believe to be the correct answer. Uh, we have two more questions. I don't know if we can quickly squeeze it. If the adhan goes, no problem. We'll just pause. Um, I want to get married to a girl. I went to her dad and told her about the marriage. He said, I already gave you my daughter, but I'll get back to you after a week. He didn't get back to me. He said, change his mind. Um, I went to another sheikh and I got married to her without the family knowing. For me, the marriage is not accepted. Wallahi. Not only from the issue of nikah bil wali, bighayr wali. But it's not, it's not honorable. It doesn't lead to protecting people's chastity. It doesn't lead to honor. And it doesn't lead to protecting the community. Even if, even if the, the, you believe that there is no need for the wali in the nikah, uh, this kind of action brings disrepute upon Muslims and people. So I believe that you should repeat your nikah with the permission of the father.
Inshallah, we're just going to take one minute to two minutes maximum just to finish the program because there's no benefit to coming back now after, after Maghrib. Uh, first of all, what's the most important science to study? First, aqidah, then fiqh, so you know what to believe and you know how to practice. How important is aqidah for a cure? Extremely important because if you have the wrong belief in Allah, Allah wouldn't accept your deeds, so it's extremely important. On the website of the AMU Academy, it says the student receive a digital certificate. How will they receive it? When they finish each book or each marhala, each stage. Can you give us a path to follow to understand the madahib? At AMU, we give you that path. You could maybe, if you were not interested in studying from us, but you just wanted to take the madhal, the introduction, just to get more details of what we did today, then yeah, this could be a, a good path, inshallah. Can your parents take your belongings without knowing? And not usually, unless there's a clear reason for them uh, to do so. Like, for example, they saw it's haram or they saw that it's not good for you. Uh, what about those who take their fiqh without a specific madhab? Like Shaykh al-Bani, there's nothing wrong. We, we mentioned this, that it's a qawl mu'tabar. It's an opinion, it's a valid opinion that it's possible to, to, to take the, your opinions. Yani. And the Shaykh didn't go outside of the madhahib yani, completely, but he just didn't stick to one particular madhab. Um, what about those people who make takfir and the hukuma and things like that? Well, it's an aqidi problem, it's an aqidah issue, and we could deal with that in aqidah, inshallah. What's the ruling of the general person who follows the alim without checking the source? There's no problem in that, and in fact, that is what we said. Your average person doesn't check the source. He can't even. The, his imam says shafi'i, but he doesn't know whether his imam, who is his imam following, which books, which part of the madhab, which... He doesn't know, so he has to trust the knowledge of the shaykh that he asked the question to. My dear brothers, Jazakum Allah khairan, I apologize for the slight delay. Hada wallahu a'lam wa salatu wa salam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.